it was replied to in the end by dr ambedkar and he listed out the plurality and the people who were opposing at the time the muslim groups basically he told them that uh, this plurality was actually uh, opposed and this plurality was kind of destroyed by your group uh, before the russia Ukraine conflagration we had uh, the hijab controversy which was happening in Karnataka uh, the the case itself is being uh, debated so i wouldn't kind of um, in the courts i wouldn't go into yeah, the the, the, the uh, yes. judgment is reserved yes yes exactly so uh, the the incident however raises some broad questions around the balance of religious beliefs and secular civil codes um, dr bhimra ambedkar the father of the indian constitution wanted our society to be equal in every way and he himself spoke for the uniform civil court back in the early days of india as a modern nation state um so in the light of arguments that such a code can hinder the practice of uh, certain religious practices and customs um how do you reconcile the ucc debate with the preeminence of pluralism as as they put it uh, in the indian constitution and what according to you is the way to kind of go about with this <clears throat> actually i have written an article on this and problem with the uniform civil code is that most people do not understand what uh, uniform civil code means a uniform civil code means uniform principles it doesn't mean one code right and um, that position has been debated quite extensively in the constituent assembly debates where yes. dr ambedkar himself spoke and a lot of other people so people like uh, i think kanaiya lal mani lal munshi he also spoke on subject allari ram swami ayer he spoke on the subject and uh, it was a very extensive debate and it was replied to in the end by dr ambedkar and he listed out the plurality and the people who were opposing at the time the muslim groups basically he told them that uh, this plurality was actually uh, opposed and this plurality was kind of destroyed by your group because this plurality used to exist even among the muslims and among the muslims you enforce this uniform civil code by bringing in what is called the shariat application act 1937 yeah. and before that the different muslim groups in the country used to practice their traditional way of civil law including the traditional forms of marriages including the traditional forms of inheritance so much so that in malabar the people used to the muslims even the muslims used to uh, practice the matrilineal form of uh, inheritance in uh, northwest frontier provinces they had their own tribal customs but then they imposed this uniform civil code under the shariat application act 1937 on the muslims yet they do not want to do it for the country right and again the same thing as i say that every time people talk of uniform civil code they refer to the goan code now they don't understand that the goan code is actually a christian code it was a law enacted by the portuguese and it was basically a church law right and, and without reading it people every time they tom tom the uh, go on example that okay there is one civil code they do not even realize that any marriage outside church needs to be recognized separately 
in, in that place. It's a completely discriminatory law. Now, what uniform civil code basically means that you have uniform principles for uh, the civil practices, the practices like marriage, divorce, inheritance, adoption, guardianship. These are the five principal component of uh, 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 civil law or rather personal law. And for that, you enunciate uniform principles. And after that, uh, people are free to practice it in their own way. And uh, you can enact separate laws. Like the Hindu code bill, similarly, you can enact a law for Muslims, which would prohibit, for instance, four marriages, which would uh, allow adoption, which is not allowed among Muslims, and which should allow guardianship to women among Muslims, which is presently not allowed. So it's talking about uniform principles. It's not talking about one single code. And uh, the whole bruhaha originates in this talk about one law. No, it cannot be one law. People should go and read that constitutional assembly debate. And if they have difficulty, all they need to do is that uh, they, they, they can just Google my article that say that uniform civil code is not one civil code. Yeah, I mean, it's rather the uniformity of application of uh, the guiding principles. And, uniform principles. And uh, being consistent, being consistent uh, in the application thereof. Um, your, your initiative, Jaipur Dialogues, has been a noteworthy attempt um, at establishing an indict organization working towards building a narrative for this for Sanatan Parampara. Uh, and your organization speaks of, uh, and I quote, and this is uh, from, from, from the website, uh, working towards nation building and recovery of the social and civilizational causes uh, by the individuals who have confidence in India as a civilizational element. So how do you see us holding our own in this struggle of narratives? Because that's been uh, one of the most important kind of, you know, tussle, the subtler tussle of narratives and discourses. And why is that so important in today's world, according to you? <clears throat> well, this whole thing, you know, that if you uh, look at the political maneuverings going on right now, and which are based basically on the academic maneuverings that have taken place in the West, and then they try to portray India having a, become one nation only under the, under the smooth guiding hand of the West in 1947. Now that's the fundamental idea that needs to be challenged. And that's why in my books also, everywhere I said that the nationhood or the Rashtritva of India is very different from the race-based concept of nation or the West and from the religion-based concept of nation of Islam. India is a civilizational nation and it is called Rashtra and that name is as old as the Vedas. And uh, European nationhood is based on uh, race and ethnicity and uh, partly on linguistics. And uh, the Islamic nationhood is based completely on religion. And because it is based on religion, and, uh, it comes into conflict with various other concepts uh, like your region, like your ethnicity. It's basically an artificial concept and it is in evidence uh, when we see that that whole Ummah is divided into 
57 Islamic countries and so many non-Islamic countries where uh, the power of this Ummah is found. And uh, of course, there's a basic conflict there again because the narrative of the leading lights, whom uh, I call Ashraf, right. or uh, Ashraf is basically a plural of the word Sharif. Right. And uh, this Sharif element, the elite uh, among the Muslims, is the one that uh, controls the narrative by doctrine. So <laughs> that, that's, that's the one that creates the difficulty. So when we talk about the idea of India, then politically it is opposed. And they call Hinduism versus Hindu, you know, all these artificial tropes are brought about. Or uh, you get these uh, uh, hyperventilating activist professors in the United States talking about dismantling global Hindutva and things like that. It is basically to deny India its civilizational nationhood. And uh, I would say that they have been quite successful in this uh, effort. And why they were not talking about it is uh, because uh, they had almost obliterated this consciousness about the civilizational nation by controlling the narrative in post-1947 India. And now they suddenly felt the urge to highlight this is because we have started taking hold of our own narrative. And uh, thanks to the internet and thanks to the information explosion and thanks to the information age, it is no longer possible for them to throttle this. And uh, that narrative is inherently so powerful that they started feeling the need to actually start countering it. And that is why you see the proliferation of uh, this, you know, the idea of India, Shashi Tharoor, or the Hinduism versus Hindutva kind of things. So actually that is, uh, an evidence that we have started taking hold of our civilizational narrative. Okay. And that is, uh, yeah, and a very important point. And the civilization nationalism that you talk about, I mean, even Rajivji has some uh, very interesting uh, writings on this, on the Rajya and Rashtra, uh, you know, uh, discourse, essentially. Um, one of the ways in which, uh, you know, some of the left liberal historians have been uh, guiding the narrative is in terms of speaking of Indian history, right? History writing uh, in India. And uh, you mentioned that uh, you speak of how history has been written by the British Western and Marxist historians uh, with a firm belief in the binary nature of logic and uh, an equally firm belief in the linearity of time. Uh, and you go on to say that India's ancient historians were more concerned uh, about the processes behind the events uh, rather than just the events in isolation. So how do you see us reimagining re uh, both in essence and in form uh, the way we can write and you know, share history in modern times so that are, it is more consistent with what has been our uh, you know, heritage, what has been our civilizational ethos uh, and way of thinking? <clears throat> uh, you actually caught the point when you say that linearity of time and uh, uh, the processes of logic. Because uh, the Indian wisdom follows uh, what we call the cyclical time. And I often quote Dr. C.K. Raju, which says that uh, uh, time is the concept that basically mediates between science and religion. 
And um, when the time concept that you adopt is so artificial that it doesn't accord with science, then you, you get a religion which is completely unscientific. And then uh, you get into a situation whether dogma guides you and uh, dogma leads you. And uh, when again in you in that kind of a situation, and you have and develop an epistemology which is uh, completely based on dogmatic proofs, which only believes in the word of the book, and whatever the book says is correct, and whatever uh, is not there in the book, or whatever the book uh, says is incorrect, is, becomes incorrect, like it happens with the Islamic scholars and uh, happens with the Christian clergy, uh, then uh, their entire thought process gets attuned to that. I have an example of Isaac Newton. Of course, Isaac Newton was a great scientist, a great mathematician. But uh, his biggest work was uh, not on <laughs> mathematics and uh, science. Uh, but his biggest work was uh, actually on Aryan Christianity, Arianism. And, uh, you, you know, Arianism is uh, some kind of uh, quasi-Unitarian uh, Christianity. And, uh, of course, that's a separate topic altogether. But uh, it is very interesting that it was the church which consciously I think it was 553, probably the fifth council, in which actually it pronounced a curse on cyclical time. <laughs> and I, I, I consider this as one of the most significant events in history, not just in the history of science, but in history. Why would an institution like the church pronounce a curse on cyclical time? Yeah. So one thing is very clear. They understood the power of that concept. And they understood that it would interfere with their power. And therefore, they banished it through dogma. So these are the things that we have to bring to the knowledge of our people and tell them that, look, your concept of time is the one that accords with science. And Science basically says what? It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's based on direct evidence. The epistemology of science and the epistemology that is followed in the Indian tradition is the same. It's, it's the same. It's, it's uh, verifiability, repeatability, universality, and falsifiability. And because falsifiability means you have the freedom to try and falsify any proposition, that's exactly what science is. In fact, Karl Popper says that falsifiability is the most important aspect of right. science. Right. And that, is, that is our tradition. That is our tradition of uh, uh, debate, questioning, and seeking. That plus our logic system. But our logic has never been the binary logic. We know that. It's the shade of gray has always been admitted in the Indian tradition. And in fact, uh, the most popular logic, the Chatushkoti logic, yes. the four-way logic, uh, that is even of even greater import. And that covers not just Sanatana Dharma, 
it is also very popular in say uh, uh, in buddhism jainism of course goes to another extreme goes to seven valued logic of saptabhangi that that uh, um, becomes very difficult for ordinary people to understand but uh, this is how life needs to be viewed is something that we need to get hold of and once we are because it's there all across our literature all across our secular literature and religious literature religious literature in sanskrit is only about 5 to 10% the rest of the 90% is secular literature covering science arts everything of course all of it is attuned to the cosmic reality so the westerners in their binary logic they think everything is religion but uh, uh, that's not the case and some very very important and people who are open minded even in the west have understood this but the point is that the hegemonic nature of this christian religion the hegemonic nature of the christian political discourse and the political processes their imperialism all this has led to a situation which is uh, which actually feels that uh, we are a threat and we are a threat because we have the capacity our narrative has the capacity of completely unraveling all their basic concepts including their time concepts including their logic concepts including their epistemology that of course is the reason why the church and uh, the clergy in islam are, are so scared of science so i always say that uh, we should use science to propagate our point of view sanatan dharma is best propagated through science and by science we do not mean the authority of science by science we mean the method of science and it's a very interesting observation because uh, in in the 20th century um, science also embraced a certain paradoxical nature of the universe i mean the wave particle duality for instance and various other uh, aspects but uh, that's clearly that way of thinking beyond and transcending a certain dogmatic foundation of epistemology uh, let's say in politics or in development studies and you know various other academic circles as well has clearly not percolated through um, and the political aspect we can see that in the inconsistency and hypocrisy of some of these uh, politicians even justin trudeau who uh, clamps down on the truckers protest in Uh, just because it is against his kind of uh, you know lobby or or the way he kind of wants to uh, put certain policies, but when it comes to Shaheen Bagh or uh, some other kind of protests in India, he'll be the first person out there trying to kind of uh, shout out against it. So I mean the whole idea of the binary and 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 being so dogmatic about it and being inconsistent in the process is is quite uh, remarkable uh, in the way it happens. Um, I would like to quickly uh, you know shift uh, focus a little to the Indian Constitution, right? I mean we uh, spoke about. uh the developments in india and um you have written about the indian constitution you have written about various nuances of that um 
in the Indian constitution is one of the most comprehensive in the world. And uh, yet there have been calls for reforms to it over time, uh, be it regarding the first past the post system, inner party democracy, uh, even the public uh, uh, interest disclosure act. Um, and most importantly, the words secular and socialist that are present in the preamble, uh, which we all have debated over time. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on these aspects and how can we go about with them? <clears throat> Well, I know what this secular and socialist thing was debated even in the constitution, but uh, uh, Dr. Ambedkar says that do we need to say it because right. uh, our entire architecture is like that. Yes. So that is, that is, that is how that uh, uh, whole question was uh, actually, <clears throat> I should say it was uh, uh, swept under the carpet. But uh, I think for certain reasons, especially during the emergency period, I think Indira Gandhi felt the urge to put it in the preamble and that's given the kind of a license to a whole uh, array of people to start preaching us on secularism. Whereas the logic of uh, Dr. Ambedkar was very simple, is that our principles that whatever we have laid down, we have talked about equality, fraternity, and uh, <clears throat> liberty, these are all the secular principles. And uh, that is how the constitution was interpreted. But then the kind of secularism that they wanted here was basically, I think the, it was done probably under the Soviet influence, but then the West very much wanted this. Because uh, under their hypocrisy, as I said, that they are always scared, all those people who know. And as I said, the very fact that uh, they, need, they, they needed to uh, call a curse on cyclical time, it means that they have understood this right from the beginning, yeah. that this cyclical time is a great threat. And uh, because of that, they needed to bring this secular thing in basically secularism uh, in the way it was being practiced before independence and even before independence their even handedness meant that it was always used to be it always used to be anti-hindu and they brought in that same import again they need to keep the hindus down in order to survive as simple as that they understand that threat that's very important the top most thinkers of Christendom, the topmost thinkers of imperialism, all of them realize the threat that if you let this Jenny out of the bottle, it can overwhelm us through the sheer power of its inherent power of its narrative. Absolutely. And, and you spoke about Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, and there are so many aspects of his thinking that, you know, um, again, the, for instance, he mentions about the difference between appeasement and settlement. Uh, he mentions about secularism and, and the various, you know, communities within India and how over time they have kind of interacted and engaged with each other. And yet today he's used in such, um, you know, skewed ways, uh, which, which is amazing. Um, speaking on the CAA, you have said that the opposition to the nullification of Article 370 and CAA uh, is 
a mirror image of the pre-partition politics of the Muslim League, uh, a reflection of a certain uh, Mazhabi Pechan, uh, highlighting that it has left, uh, it, le it led to the original thought of Pakistan. And if we had gone with that thought, the original thought as, as, it, is, as it was, uh, we would have had the Rahmat Ali map and a large part of current day India would have uh, possibly been in Pakistan. And the left contents on the other side, that the Mahzabi Pachan was provoked or instated by the very language of the CA itself, uh, which was selective in its ambit of expedited uh, citizenship, as problematic as that thinking is. Um, so what are your thoughts on the same? <clears throat> I've explained it in my book. Uh, I think what you were quoting, you're quoting from my book, Unbreaking India. Yes. And uh, that uh, preface is written by Rajiv Ji himself. <laughs> and uh, the basic thing is that uh, that whole thing actually starts from the indian independence act right. the indian independence act it was the one that envisaged muslim and non-muslim states right. and uh, a stamp on that was uh, affixed by the liaquat nehru pact and whatever has been done in CA, I explained that in my book in fair amount of detail, saying that it is actually a continuation of the Liaquat Nehru Pact because Pakistan never adhered to the word of the Liaquat Nehru Pact. And under the Liaquat Nehru Pact, it is a right of each other's minorities to gain the citizenship of the uh, other country. Why? Because Indian Independence Act is basically crafted in that manner. So, to say that CA has given uh, rights to the minorities of uh, neighboring Muslim states, yeah. why don't they go back and look at the Liaquat Nehru Pact? And if it's too hard, they can just read my simple commentary on it. Um, you you have also spoken about um, you know um, these aspects of um, how the Mazhabi Pachan, I mean more recently in the Kashmir issue and uh, we just had the release of the Kashmir files um, and you speak of you've written about the seven exoduses of Hindus from Kashmir in the past um, Kashmir pandits have been an important part of Bharat since ancient times and yet they were uh, as cruelly displaced and dispossessed of their land and heritage as they were so what do you think would be a comprehensive strategy to promote the rights and interests of Kashmiri pundits, uh, even as we see a resurgence and renaissance of the, Indian, uh, the Hindu cause, uh, so to say. So we have to go back to the basic disease. The basic disease is uh, uh, the Islamic plan of uh, taking over India, re-establishing what they like to fancy as the Mughal Empire. And uh, that's what I've explained in my book again and again. Uh, that is that uh, that is their a living dream, the what is called the unfinished uh, agenda of the partition. And as they used to sing, again, I've mentioned that in my book, what they used to say that <clears throat> Pakistan, Hindustan. So that is the project, unfinished project that is still being continued, starting from Kashmir, then carrying on to Jammu, and then carrying on to Punjab, on to Delhi. Finally, they want that <laughs> Rahmat Ali map back, basically. The Chaudhary Rahmat Ali map is their eventual dream. It's not something that they've forgotten. And uh, our state willy-nilly facilitates it. As in a number of my dialogues, uh, we have stated, especially my dialogues with the um, Kashmiri Hindus, it comes out very clearly that 
nature of Indian state, this Indian state in very many ways actually is standing against the nation. And uh, it uh, prides itself in aligning itself with those who actually want India divided into 18 parts, who want the Rahmatali map enacted in modern India. And again and again, it goes back to that same disastrous course, which I think very first chapter I have quoted from uh, H. V. Shashadri's book, what was the Muslim behavior and what was the national behavior, national behavior that led to abject surrender and the Muslim behavior that demanded more and more and more and more. As Ravardi said once, Pakistan is, uh, uh, Pakistan is not our last demand, it is only our latest demand. <laughs> Right. So th their demands are never going to come to an end. So uh, yeah, so which, which that's something that we have to understand, and, the, and nothing better to understand that than actually really studying the history of India's partition. Right. So, so which brings me to the, the to my last question, and it has been such an interesting uh, interaction. Um, so you speak about the essence of the Indian state, and in the constitution itself, uh, we have the preeminence to truth, uh, Satya, which, um, you know, well, Mahatma Gandhi used as a uh, premise for his, uh, um, you know, uh, for his uh, struggle. I'm not sure how much of it was really what he wanted to represent it as, uh, but there is a certain preeminence given to truth, and uh, uh, it comes from the civilizational ethos, again, that we uh, speak of. So it's a fairly dharmic kind of orientation from the get-go. Uh, there are two specific things that I want to kind of uh, ask you about regarding vis-a-vis uh, this, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis this um, premise. Uh, one is to do with the idioms and analogies in today's India. I mean, we see a certain nostalgia, so to say, uh, which is important, which is important because there is a certain cultural and civilizational foundation we are building upon uh, in modern times. But there's a certain nostalgia, which is uh, often not relevant all the time. I mean, there are some uh, and certain stories, for instance, um, do you not think that there is a need for reinventing or reimagining, um, you know, what we call as a Shruti, uh, as the essence, uh, in more modern forms of symbolism and Smriti, so to say? Uh, and the second question I would like to, uh, you know, ask you about, again, with respect to truth uh, being so important, uh, is to do with one of the big problems we have today, which is of fake news, uh, which is of uh, this shadow warfare with the misuse of facts and, uh, you know, ideas, essentially. Uh, so how can we kind of stand against that effectively uh, in today's India and the world? <clears throat> uh, well, two are completely unrelated questions. Right. Yes. But, well, so, yeah. uh, let me go with the first one about the symbolisms and uh, Shrutis and Smritis. And actually, it's not a question of reimagining. It is actually a question of correctly imagining. I'll give you an example. Mahatma Gandhi is considered a doyen of Ahinsa. Right. Whereas I consider him a doyen of Hinsa. Right. And the reason for that is that uh, Hinsa and Ahinsa is uh, completely interpreted wrongly. Because uh, Hinsa means when you impose your ego on someone, right. it doesn't have to be physical non-violence. Imposition of your ego is Hinsa. Right. And even physical violence without involving your ego, it's a hinsa. 
I am not saying that. It is, it is uh, there in the Bhagavad Gita, 18th chapter, 17th shloka. Yasinahan kritu bhavo, buddhir yasinalipyate, hatpasa iman lokan, nahanti, nanibadhyate. That means where your ego is not involved, you are killing somebody for dharma, your ego is not involved, you are doing it for dharma, then it is not violence. You are neither killing him, neither killing someone, nor are you getting involved in the fruits of that action. There cannot be a more beautiful explanation of Hinsa and Ahinsa. But look at Mahatma Gandhi, his entire life was full of imposing his ego, his will, his thoughts on others. There cannot be greater Hinsa than that. He was a most violent person. He was completely dictatorial in his uh, ways. He never allowed any dissent. He never listened much to anybody. His treatment of Sebastian Bose is pointer. And the way he uh, reacted to criticism, the way he went on to fast to impose his will on others, they are all testaments to his uh, ego and to get the fruits that his ego demanded. So according to me, Gandhi is a violent person. If you go by the explanations that are given or the understanding, if you have a deep understanding of the Indian uh, traditions, then it's very easy to conclude. But if you are looking into binaries, then you are not able to understand. You will think physical non-violence is non-violence. No, it isn't. Similarly, a lot of other idioms are misinterpreted. And in fact, I have, I think, uh, quite a few videos in which uh, I've said that three or four idioms uh, <laughs> that are so badly misinterpreted are the cause of all our confusion. One is Vasudhava Kutumbakam, the other is the Hinsa Paramodharma, and uh, one is uh, Sarvadharma Samabhava, and uh, another one is Ekam Sat Viprabhavadhavadanti. And all these confusions arise because you are interpreting them either in the wrong context or you are interpreting uh, in, 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 the, in the wrong sense. So that is a huge problem. I, I, I won't labor on that because that will become very long. So people who want to understand that, they can go and check on Jaipur Dialogue. They'll find these videos. And uh, what was the last part, the second part Sorry, of that? Yeah, uh, uh, to do with, uh, the, again, the whole idea of truth, uh, but, uh, you know, the misuse or rather the distortion of uh, truth for um, political purposes. So fake news, for instance, this whole idea of WhatsApp University, uh, you know, the preeminence of the shadow warfare that's going on with lies and, you know, misprojections. Lies have to necessarily wear the mask of truth. <laughs> Why a lie is a lie is because a lie cannot stand on its own feet. Because it has to stand on the crutches of truth. So that is its basic nature. And uh, we have to be smart to be able to uh, 
actually filter the truth from the falsehood and for that uh, it's, it's a huge task our whole education system our 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 entire uh, narrative as i have been saying again and again that has to change All right, Sanjayji. I think uh, that was uh, we covered a fair few topics. Um, I'm sure if we had, you know, if we, if we continued, we could have gone into a lot other, lot more things that you have written about, you have spoken about, and it's a real pleasure to have you here with us at Infinity Foundation. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us and uh, sharing your views on on these various uh, topics of interest. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. Namaste. Namaskar.